Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Before we even get into the intro for this episode, though, I have something very fun to share with you. It is a trailer for a new uh, podcast called The Flame. It is an LGBTQ musical, and it is incredibly fun. So I'm going to show you the trailer for that before we dive into this episode. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Jamie, and I'm the owner of your new favorite LGBTQ bar, The Flame. Here at The Flame, everyone's family. And just like a family, when things get tough, we band together. We'll keep it lit, lit, lit. Don't ever quit, quit, quit. We'll never let the flame go out. 
Join us every Wednesday at The Flame to hear how I save my bar and maybe, just maybe, fall in love. The Flame, an original LGBTQ podcast musical starring Jen Colella and Jasmine Savoy Brown, now on the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm slash the flame for more info and to listen and follow the podcast. Now, fun fact, I record the introduction to these conversation episodes without any kind of script, and therefore they go a little bit more off of the rails than most. Really quite exciting, really keeping me on my toes, I would say, and none more than this episode with wonderful Lisa Charlotte of Sweet Bitter. Lisa and I have become friends through our two podcasts, and we get along super well, so this episode was both very fun and absolutely ridiculous to edit because we also had drinks with us. Oh my gosh. Which means, yes, it was a little uh, freewheeling at times, a little less structured than you might be getting used to with some of my conversation episodes, and that's the way I work. It was really so exciting. We talked about Sappho and what Sweet Bitter has learned in researching her for their podcast, which again, I recommend. But we also talked specifically about this controversy that took place while they were researching their Sappho episode. And oh man, the drama involved. You will not believe it. You will truly never see it coming. It was such a fun conversation. We just had, you know, a great time. I did not have a great time editing it, but none of you have to know that except for when I tell you about it. So please sit back and enjoy this incredibly fun conversation once more about our girl, Sappho. Conversations, the sexuality of Sappho with bonus controversy with Lisa Charlotte of Sweet Bitter. Thank you so much for coming on, Lisa. We're just friends as it is, so this is going to be a bit of like a fast and loose conversation. Absolutely. And, uh... Just any excuse to drink with you on a Sunday afternoon and talk about erasure in history. <laughs> it's a story of sort of my attempts at this podcast all the time. But this came about because you, uh, along with Ellie and Elise, uh, last year, I guess, started Sweet Bitter and... I'm sure you just learned so much about generally like queer identities and everything to do with that in the ancient world. So I wanted to make sure I had you on. We missed having you on the Sweet Bitter episode of my podcast. So now you get one all to Three yourself. Three guests is too many guests. Absolutely. It was also so early in my like editing voices together days. And I was just like, the idea of editing together four voices makes me want to curl up in a ball and cry. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really tough. And actually, we have had people who have said, we'll have all three of you. And we're just like, no, it's too many people. It's just too many people on a call. But I mean, special bonus thing that I didn't expect, which is that now I get my whole own episode. Suck it, Ellie and Elite. No, <laughs> so much. Um, but yes, we did start this podcast about Sappho. As I'm sure they told you, um, it really originated because I heard about it on another podcast and I was like, who is a Sappho? And like, you know, it took me a, a long time to come into my identity. I'm bisexual and 
I think like a lot of bisexual uh, women, especially, I had like <laughs> slept with women, but I was like, I'm straight. All straight people <laughs> do this. And so it's really hard to uh, accept your identity, I think, in queer spaces, having that very different experience, like I guess externally always looking quite heterosexual and whatnot. And it's been really and just uh, really great trying to create an inclusive podcast that does include bisexual people because Sappho's name is often used to exclude them from you know lesbian identity and and sapphic identity so it's been a journey but I'm not a historian (laughs) (laughs) neither am I um but that (laughs) have a BA from 10 years ago so don't worry um but that that's really interesting I hadn't thought about that but you're right like Sappho is so often ascribed either like it's like either she's straight or she's, you know, lesbian exclusively. It doesn't, I mean, there's not a lot of talk about her in general, I think in sort of like more, like less academic, less like nerd filled spaces. And there should be, but in general, yeah, you think about like the word sapphic or lesbian for lesbos, all of that tends to exclude bisexual people, but she did write about men and women, right? Yeah, she did. And there's debate about that, like whether or not she was, Speaking as a character, I mean, as you know, her husband is Kirkulos of Andros, which is Dick from Man Island, but which is still my favorite joke about all of it. But the funniest thing for me has been like, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on Twitter.com and uh, my favorite thing is when people like very firmly assert her identity. So they're like, Sappho was a bi-lesbian, Sappho was a lesbian, Sappho was bisexual. And there was, I think someone from Ireland the other day, and I don't know who it was, and it was the most perfect response. And they were like, she told you that, I? Like, <laughs> it's just like, exactly. Like, they didn't even use these words. Like, lesbian is from Sappho. Yeah, like, yeah, as if it existed. She's literally a woman from Lesbos. That's where we get the word. She is a lesbian. But then every single person from Lesbos is and was a lesbian. Yes. And not in the way that we talk about it today. Exactly. Which apparently the Isle of Lesbos tried to sue over this, over the use of the word lesbian. Who would? I don't. Who know. would they sue? The world. Like we're so bad. <laughs> the whole world. I'm going to sue the English language. Um. So I mean, it's just been a really interesting, uh, an interesting thing for me, and I just, I mean, I've always found this, and I think maybe like as a virtue of aging, you get a little less certain, and I found this so interesting in sort of like the pandemic with TikTok and you see these 18 year olds who are like this is facts and this hat's how it is and I'm just like you don't know (laughs) like we don't know we just did a whole podcast on Sappho and all I will say like with I guess a level of confidence is that she was a woman who loved other women and that's all I'm gonna say (laughs) and she wrote poetry she wrote poetry we We can agree on that poetry um but yes we've had people email us and message us and being like I'm bisexual but I really love your podcast but one of the hosts is bisexual. This is also your history. So it's been, yeah, it's been a great thing to be a part of. I still feel like not queer enough. Interesting. I I mean, like, obviously this is different, but I feel this so deeply in just like the way I position myself and this podcast in the world of classics. Mm. Like, I always feel like I am not academic or enough, enough or not like classic centric enough. And like, it has nothing to do with my, you know, personal identity so I don't want to connect it in that way but I do I I definitely like identify with the idea of just like not 
being enough in something that you are enough in. Yes. Like you, you objectively are enough. You are bisexual <laughs> enough. And I am classics enough. How much pussy do I have exactly. to eat? Is my, always my question. <laughs> like, what's the number? Just tell me the number. Uh, but no, it's true. And, but I think that actually that's what's really great. So I, I mean, I used to run a lot of events um, around different topics. And honestly, academics, they get so caught up in the weeds of things that they their content often isn't that accessible. They're so like, it's a different way of thinking. And like, obviously, we work with Elise, who's an incredible academic. And it's such an asset. And she's also great at like podcasting, but is definitely very different. And I think that for us being like self-professed, like not experts has actually been, has actually produced a really good podcast about Sappho because we're sort of on the journey and like, we probably haven't got everything hundred percent right, but we were just on a, on a journey with our listeners. So I'm hoping more Sappho content comes, I mean, not as a result of us, but like just as time goes on, because she's such an interesting figure. And honestly, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface in like 12 episodes. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's very accurate. Definitely like describing academics as an asset I think is important like I've now Mm. you know kind of turned this podcast into having academics on all the time and I love it it's fascinating because you do get this like very different side of all of it just because these are people who like study it in a way that I don't and never will I'm, I'm constantly weighing out my own feelings on like feeling like I'm doing enough without being an academic where I'm like I really it's fine like I have a commercial podcast it's fine um but then at the same time like learning so much from when I do have them on and I think there's a good balance to be set of of coming at something in a really accessible way while still having at the asset of like some academia on your side and I think yeah yeah I mean both of us have like a bachelor's degree and I think that that's you know that's a great asset. But I, I just think like, what's the point of knowledge if it's not accessible? Like, what's the point of like having it all up in a, yeah. Which also Sappho's great for that. She is, I just think like, we talked about this on a live episode is, you know, she, her Twitter account, for example, like the Sappho mm-hmm. bot accounts. It's like, you can just read this on the internet today. It's it's so accessible and, and relevant. Like 2,500 years later, it's amazing. I think like, so I, I really did not know enough about Sappho in general I mean for one I don't think she I think she was like barely mentioned if ever mentioned in my BA which I think is deeply wrong right like it's come on and I feel I don't even I can't even tell you exactly like you know when I learned her name or I just feel like to me and I am the type of person who takes in information that I don't recognize I'm necessarily taking in but I just knew you know that she was a woman poet generally who wrote about women but I don't think I really understood the importance of her or how famous she was that's what really gets me how famous she was I think is is utterly fascinating so I do want to talk about that I also want to talk about her husband because I want to get more inside details than like you so I don't think we have any (laughs) so okay no so and I'm sure I will have mentioned this on the episode that I have not written yet but that will come out before our conversation (laughs) but um Lisa was so wonderful as to share some of their research from those early days of of sweet bitter um or even elise's before research, it elise's research yes elise's research <laughs> thank you elise thank you um, elise and so it, it, yeah it, this idea that her husband what was his name again kirkalos of andros i'm probably yeah. not saying it right 
Um, but it, yeah, I can picture the spelling. Yeah. Yes. So it, it it means I know Andros means man. Yeah. That, that is an island, but okay. So it was like Dick for Man Island, or like <laughs> Dick Johnson for Man Island is how a lot of people say it. Uh, which it's because it's referenced. It's not she doesn't say it. It's referenced. Um, a lot of people did parodies of Sappho. Uh, in later times, um, and it was along with her being amazing at blowjobs, uh, apparently, which is wow, men slut shaming a lesbian. Ah, I just I, again gasp, audible gasp. Uh, so it was more in the parodies of her in later years to come when people were sort of telling her story. Um, so yes, that's, that's uh, just Kirkulus, our our friend. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's interesting to think about just the like if she didn't mention him you know you gotta wonder but well I mean it's interesting because her poetry until very recently was uh translated uh heterosexually because right the default apparently and uh she does write a lot of wedding poetry so that you know sometimes she is writing like for the bride and the groom and so that's why it's hard to say like yes she did write about men but was she writing about men herself or was she writing about men for weddings and because we only have fragments of her poetry mm-hmm. you know it's it's hard to know um but we were speaking to diane Rea, who is a translator of sappho's work and honestly probably my favorite my favorite translations are often Rea's translations uh and she was the first person to identify a gerund i think in ode aphrodite which is the only full poem of sappho's that we have and it was like one gerund of one sentence that was feminine and uh and she is the first person to translate Sappho's poems written about women I think uh so that's really interesting to me as well it's just like just the presumed heterosexuality even though like historically we kind of knew that Sappho was gay I mean it was wide knowledge but her poems had been mostly translated in a in a very heterosexual way and Dan was like well this is this is Sappho. Why am I assuming that it's a it's a man? But unlike the English language where we do she he like quite often, I think Greek is not like that. I mean, you're the one studying Greek, but well, Greek is. Greek. I mean, as far as I understand it, it's even more gendered because mm. um, they're gendered like Latin is gendered, where like way and in the way that most Romantic languages are gendered. Oh, but um, not in the individual, but in the like an item is gendered. An item is gendered, yeah, but the names are as well. Hmm. So it's just interesting. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't. I definitely don't know enough ancient Greek yet to say anything with any even like. I literally can like pronounce and it. And it's Aeolic Greek, yeah. I uh, I don't know much about it, and I honestly, we've spoken about this before. I have really bad rote memory. I'm a very like conceptual thinker. So um, listen to our translation episode. I don't even know which one it is. Yeah, but I think it's like episode <laughs> seven or eight. Our episode on translation goes into all of that. It's incredible to me. And Ooh. it was definitely perceived. And, you know, it's Pride Month. So erasure of, you know, any homosexual relationships. And uh, the idea of her is like either this like schoolmistress or a whore, which has been like her two kind of like identities. They're like, oh, no, she hung out with women because she was teaching them. Or like, no, she was a whore. She was like giving men blowjobs all the time and threw herself off a cliff for some ferryman like there you know it's just it's it's what is wild to me about it is that it's so relatable and that it is so much the conversations and the things that men like say to me 
if I reject them now. Like men have just like unchanged. They're like, wow, a powerful woman. What can I do? I'm going to call you a slut or I'm going to like, you know, virginize. Like it's just the same shit. And I'm just amazed. That's been the biggest thing for me. Yeah, just that nothing ends. Mm -hmm. It never ends. And I mean, that's basically like the crux of this podcast Mm -hmm. too. My podcast is like just, it's all the fucking same. And um, what one thing that strikes me as so shocking in everything that you've just said, but also like just everything we know about Sappho is like, so for me, I didn't know much about her. I didn't know the details, but obviously what I knew was she was a lesbian. Like I know the word sapphic. I know the word lesbian. And so the idea that then her poetry was translated as heterosexual is so wild. And also at the same time, like not at all surprising (laughs) You know, it's like this weird combination of like, but of course she was gay. So like, why are we not talking about, why are we translating it as if she wasn't, but simultaneously, like, of course that, you know, of course, course. like even one thing that's really interesting as I try to continue with pride-based episodes on this podcast is that because I'm running low, Mm. basically, Mm. I've told them all because there's not a lot of really extensive ones and But one thing I've noticed is that, like, there's basically no stories of women loving other women. And, of course, like, it's all based on the same level of, like, what was and was not okay, but also primarily whose stories got told. And, like, if there was a story about a woman loving another woman in Greek mythology, nobody wrote it down, which does not surprise me at all. And so, like, I'm sure they existed. I'm sure because we have Sappho. So, like, obviously these stories existed but we don't have them like the best thing we have is artemis and callisto except that callisto's downfall is that zeus transforms himself into artemis to assault her just like revolting Mm -hmm. and horrifying and like the only real like half decent myth we have of two women together whereas like there are so many myths of two men together and then there are so many trans myths in fascinating ways but when it comes to like two women together it's like non-existent because it just like the idea you know couldn't just couldn't manifest itself because of the overarching nature of like dudes telling these stories and like just dudes being shitty yeah and i mean it's interesting in terms of like thinking about pride this year and um a pride is just like so much gayer this year i feel like my friend group all collectively are getting gayer like you know just keep getting messages being like oh it's my first pride out I'm like of course it is everyone's just sat in lockdown and like oh my god I think I'm gay or like bi or whatever and I just love this for everybody um but uh there's been a lot of discourse around the kind of what I like to call the glbtq gays which is the the gays who like think that G should go first there is so much patriarchy and misogyny in the gay community and racism and all of that like it's it's and the intersectional lens that we're kind of shining on things I think is really useful and it really plays into like what you're talking about which is that no one wrote them down and like you're thinking about you know and I I think what I've really loved is in conversations about pride in the last few years you get the story of Marsha P. Johnson being the first Mm. person to throw a stone like it was this is a movement, this is a parade that we have because of trans women of color 
black trans women, trans women of color, which is something that's just being completely left out of the discourse in the same way that lesbians have often been left out of the discourse, bisexual people left out of the discourse. And actually a lot of the early organizations for lesbians and for lesbian rights were named for Sappho. Like Sappho Mm -hmm. as a name was like a code word for women to understand that they were like, that they loved each other. It was, it was a very like, covert way of letting people know like I think and I really should have uh done more research but there was a there was you're on my podcast (laughs) I mean I was just you know I was like I got wine is that not all I had to do (laughs) that's that's literally all you had to do don't worry step two (laughs) get on the phone to live um but it's uh there was definitely a lesbian social club that was founded in England um named for Sappho or it's called Sappho um, in Notting Hill but there was also a magazine that was attached to that uh, and there have also been women's organizations and protests in her name her poetry and stuff is featured in magazines about revolution like she is a really key figure for lesbians actually which in a way I kind of understand why some lesbians feel a need to exclude bisexual women from her story uh I think we should move past that now but I I think that I think a lot of it is people just don't understand the history of of being queer and of the movement there are so many great queer history podcasts uh that you can listen to to kind of get that but I'm rambling um but my point being is that Sappho is a name that was used by lesbian organizations throughout history to sort of as a point of revolution I'm I'm gonna stop because I'm gonna just have some more wine no but that's yeah that I I almost feel like just even you talking about that I I almost feel like the word sapphic feels older to me than lesbian and I wonder if that's kind of that it was almost more of a code word earlier I don't know but it to me actually I think a lot of it's really hard to track yeah Um, well it would be okay so I honestly I try to just like quickly while you were talking do a little search and find exactly the dates because as I said I'm really bad at dates but um whenever we said on the podcast that the lesbian was first used it actually was used I think in everyday language before then but it was the first time that it was like used widely and mm-hmm. our friend Heather at Lesbian History Motif Podcast actually pointed it out to us and we were like do we go back and change it which as you know is kind of difficult to do and then eventually we were like look widely used so I now would say like it started being widely used I think it's in the late 19th century that it started being widely used or mid Mm. to late but I think it was used before then in terms of sapphic I know that sappho was used quite frequently but I couldn't say when sapphic came into popular discourse and again Mm. never claiming to be I like to call myself a sappho expert expert now (laughs) but I'm not claiming (laughs) to know everything Um, I mean, how could you? I get it. But also, like, on that, what's been really interesting is I went to a lot of Sappho events in this time, and a lot of Sappho experts have no idea about the recent provenance and Obink scandal. Mm -hmm. And so, again, back to this conversation that we've had either on on air or not, can't remember, about... uh, (laughs) about, Lisa and I talk a lot. (laughs) Yes, we talk a lot. But about academics and about how academics and them being very, like, siloed uh, is kind of like, you know, sometimes we're just very happy to have these podcasts where we're just kind of coming in a little bit, like, ignorant. Um, I was at a, a Sappho event with a bunch of, like, world experts and they had no idea about the most recent discovery of Sappho's work which has been one of my favorite things that I've learned from the podcast. 
I desperately want to hear about this. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm going to call it the Dirk Obing scandal, and I'm going to say very clearly that this is all alleged. Do it is also, like, pretty widely it's alleged. It's pretty widely like, alleged, but everything I'm telling you is something that I've learned from reading a source or from our podcast where we spoke to the people who are investigating this case. I'm going to give you, like, the quick TLDR. We did, like, three episodes on it, so I could not possibly tell you everything. Also, I'm pretty much going on memory because, um, like you, I'm very unprepared. So Love it. Um, but this was one of my favorite things about the podcast, and we had no idea we were going to go in this direction. And it is something that I feel like, you know, after speaking to so many Sappho experts, this is like a, an area of knowledge uh, that we that a lot of Sappho experts don't have. And I think it's so important, which is like, where do these fragments come from? Like, where do they come from? Because, you know, in all these conversations we're having around colonialism and Eurocentrism, it's so big in the ancient world. Um, we are now, like, I think, like, the the favorite podcast of papyrologists. Because we were like, oh, my God, papyrologists <laughs> is so interesting. And we have, like, four episodes in all of papyrology Twitter was like, have you heard Sweet Bitter? We're all on there. That's so, I love that. And also, like, it's the 
that's the best level of nerd. It is. You know, I the love it. best level of like just dorky incredibleness is like, let's talk papyrus. Yes, I love <laughs> it so much. And so we had our first episode with Malcolm Choate, who is a, an Australian. And actually it was, it was kind of wonderful in a way. I was stuck in Australia because of COVID and, um, and the Google search is interesting. It doesn't come up with everything it's very like localized. I don't think we really realize that. And so I'm so grateful that I was in Australia because I found some really amazing Australians oh. that I don't think I would have found. Like we have had, we had three Australians on the podcast and I don't think I would have found them if I'd been here, but because I was in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. Like I know they're localized, but you'd think that you would still be able to find like experts and, and people like that. But that makes sense. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. But also, I mean, there is a, there is a frankness to Australians that I really appreciate. And I think we were talking about this. I'm sure it's similar to Canadians where America's a very litigious society and to get, and actually, sorry, we spoke to Italians and French people and stuff who were also quite like open about this specific thing, but because we are in a litigious society and because Obink is American, I think there was a lot of like, Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Whereas Malcolm was just like, here's how it is. Let me just tell you in English, plain English, Australian English. Um, and he was amazing. So we did, our, we did our first episode. We only had spoken to him and he was like our papyrology guy. And then from this, it just like cascaded into like speaking to all of the biggest experts in the world about this scandal, including, you know, an Atlantic journalist um roberta matza who is like writing a book on this who has you know been the person at the forefront of the investigation actually we had tried to she had she had kind of we talked to her and she'd been like yeah yeah and then never followed up and then we released our first episode on it and she was like i need to speak to you this week and we were like oh i see (laughs) now you're coming to us i see (laughs) but she was also just like one of our favorite people so basically what happened is this. So Dirk Obink is, or he was, the guy who controlled basically like the Oxford University collection of papyrology. And I mean, that in itself, it's all stuff that's been taken from mostly Egypt uh, that like really the Oxford, ha- Oxford has no business owning. And we spoke to an Egyptian papyrologist, Usama Gad, who talked to us a lot. And we did a whole episode on Eurocentrism and colonialism. I mean, yeah. Do we need to go into what the UK should not be owning? Exactly. (laughs) Like this conversation is basically making me think about like who I could have on the podcast to talk about the British Museum. Yeah. Usama Mm -hmm. God. Ask him. He's amazing. Uh, Or Catherine Blouin, who is uh, in Montreal, I think. She's Canadian. Um, She's amazing. But they, they run Everyday Orientalism, which is an incredible kind of like papyrology ancient artifact blog, which talks a lot about these issues. Uh, but no, so, um, they have all these things cause you know, obviously Egyptians can't be trusted with them. Um, just like the Greeks can't be trusted with the, the, the Parthenon marbles. Of course not. I just can't. No, no. These, these societies are just not evolved enough, even though we're going to talk about how the Greeks are the most evolved society in the world, but they also can't handle their own marbles, let alone the Egyptians that did it all long before the Greeks Absolutely. because the Egyptians were way fancier. Which is anyway. why... The word civilization is a trigger for me. As it if should be. If anybody says civilized, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Okay. But basically, so basically Dirk Obing, MacArthur genius, Grant winner, he's American, but he was tasked with running the Oxford Oxyrhynchus collection. Biggest, I think it's the biggest collection of, of papyrus. And um, 
I don't know. I, like, there's so much to go into and I just, I can't, I can't do it correctly. But basically there was like a new Sappho discovery. I think it was 2014, 2015, around that time. And it was sort of staged at another university, which names escapes me right now. It's a B name. Again, bad with facts, didn't take notes. But basically they like staged. So it was this Sappho, it was a brother's poem. So it spoke about her three mm. brothers, the provenance was very murky. So he's like, oh, I've discovered mm-hmm. this new Sappho poem. He made a lot of like super sexist, creepy statements about being alone on an island with Sappho, which like gross. Uh, but he basically was like, I found this new Sappho. And then the, the provenance was very murky. And so a bunch of papyrologists got really bored in lockdown and started exploring this stuff, which I think is amazing. So he'd like... That is so good. I love it. It's like one of my favorite like, stories it's out so of the good. pandemic. So I mean, I heard a, I hear a lot about provenance lately, like just, just from being in this world on Twitter and I find it super fascinating. And then I like worry about coins that I own, which is like literally all that I have. But provenance is, it's so interesting. And like the level of murkiness and the level of like mm-hmm. sketch yes. that can be involved in like where a thing came from is fascinating. It's really fascinating and it's so important important and I think this scandal has and probably why you're hearing about it so much recently is because this scandal has really brought it into the into the Mm -hmm. forefront so this is something that's been going on and like all the people we spoke to made that really clear they're like this has been an issue in this world for a very long time but this has like shone a light on it in a way that we just didn't really have before well and Hobby Lobby do they get into this yes yes because my thought on like questionability and provenance even before I got so deep into classics Twitter was Hobby Lobby Mm -hmm. because it became a big thing. So basically I'm going to do like the TLDR of the whole situation because as I said three episodes I really can't tell you everything. The description of this episode will have links to the Sweet Better episodes that we talk about here so you guys can please go listen and subscribe and all of those. So it's five six seven it's three in a row the first two are about the scandal the third one is about Eurocentrism and colonialism in the papyrology world, which we just felt we needed a whole episode on because it's just, it's so important. But yeah. basically, Hobby Lobby had been working with Dirk Obink to try to find, because they were looking for older Bible because they have the whole Museum of the Bible thing. But this is all stuff that's been reported. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it like I'm saying it. Allegedly. It's all alleged. Allegedly. So basically, Hobby Lobby had been working with Dirk Obink to try to find older remnants of the Bible. And I think Ariel Sabah, who we were lucky enough to speak to, has a whole book called The Gospel of Jesus's Wife. Um, And that goes into a lot of this. And so primarily they were trying to find older, older Bible artifacts. But along the way, Sappho stuff came up too, which like for me, I'm just like, oh my God, you're going to give a Christian organization Sappho artifacts? That feels not great, but whatever. So... Hobby Lobby had commissioned Dirk Obank. At some point, Oxford kind of found out and they were like, hey, you can't have both of these jobs. Like, you need to stop working with Hobby Lobby or you need to give up your spot at the Oxyrhynchus collection. Dirk Obank was like, I'll stop working with Hobby Lobby. He did not, allegedly. So he said he wasn't going to work for them anymore, but then it turns out that he was. Um... In some of my conversations with papyrologists, what's really interesting is that there were times, because apparently he was really lovely to other papyrologists and when they would visit Oxford and he'd show them the collection. And anecdotally, one of the papyrologists that we spoke to 
was like, oh yeah, we were looking for a certain fragment and it wasn't there. And, and he was like, oh, that's weird. And then it turns out that um, there were fragments missing from the collection kind of registry, but someone had actually done an analog record, which I don't think he knew about. Now I'm not saying that he stole from the Oxyrhynchus collection, because I don't know, and everything's alleged, but all I'm saying is that things were missing and that he was at some point arrested and it's all just way more wild than I ever expected for our Sappho podcast that this story happened. Uh, I, I love that you're speechless. Like, I'm just like waiting for you to jump in and you're just shaking your head and just like, what? That is, yeah, that is fucking mind boggling. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, like, aside from the levels of darkness, the levels of Eurocentrism and colonialism and just, like, you know, everything involved in that, but also, like, (laughs) on the basic level of, like, what is Papyrus doing being so full of, like, intrigue and scandal? I know! Like, that's just hilarious to me. Like, on top of, there's so much. There's so many layers. But also, like... Let us laugh a but little bit knew? about papyrus I know. and like the provenance of Sappho fragments. We had no idea that we were getting into yeah. this. And so many people who listen are like, what the fuck? Episodes four to eight? Like what? And we're like, we know. And that's, again, when I talk about like, it's kind of great that we're not experts. Because I think that experts on Sappho wouldn't have gone on this tangent. Whereas we're just like, yeah. let's learn everything. And we're like, holy shit, this is wild. Because this started happening when we were researching for the podcast so we're researching for the podcast and all of a sudden it's like what <laughs> this massive Atlantic article I, I also think that like the 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 being not an expert leads to a level of shock and awe that is <laughs> just like ideal for a podcast too because like you want you want the host the person like talking about all of this you want them to be as surprised as you are yes. because if they're talking about this like yeah, you know, this, this is obvious, obvious pyrology scandal. I think that it, it does definitely adds a level to like the accessibility in like a broad term of just like even just like academic mm. accessibility, you know, of just like coming at this in a way where you're like, this is fucked up. Somebody else, please think about how fucked up this is with me. It's so wild. It's hard because you really have to tell the whole story in its entirety. And mm-hmm. honestly, like, I'm not I'm not one to be like, go listen to it. But like, just the, if you don't want to listen no, to no, our please, podcast. No, no, please, go listen to it. No, but like, yeah. just these these four. So it's three episodes, but then the, the episode four is about, it's Malcolm setting up all the papyrus terminology. So I would mm-hmm. recommend listening mm-hmm. to that just to like, ground yourself in papyrology and what it is but really it's five to seven and and it's just it's just it's mind-blowing but and so I'm telling this all in like very random parts uh so I'm going to talk about cartonage because I know you want to talk about that and then I'm going to talk about Roberta Mazza because she's great so um the cartonage thing came about basically because people started to call into question the provenance of everything and so basically what happened is Dirk Obink, like, faked a cartonage discovery. Allegedly. Okay, whatever. We're going to say allegedly for everything. But I think, like, I think this is, like, known. So, uh, basically what happened. So, cartonage is paper mache, basically. But really what it is, is it's, like, mummy, which is a very, like, paper mache kind of experience. And so this is a very mm-hmm. interesting thing. It's papyrus around mummies, yeah. and it is Recycled a papyrus. Recycled papyrus. It's, it's yeah. Paper mache is a very easy way to explain it. 
Yeah, and it's not always recycled, but in the case of what we're talking about, definitely. Like, the recycled cartonnage, the recycled papyrus, mm-hmm. it is a wealth of, of fascination. Absolutely. And this is a thing that I think is really interesting to think about. And, like, uh, you and I grew up in, I guess, as similar a society as you could, being Canadian and Australian, the amount of Egyptian things, m- mummies and stuff at museums that you see. Yeah. Uh, there's a real lack of respect for the dead of other societies that we have and this really plays into that and you think about like the fact that they're on display at all you think about the fact that european tourists used to go to egypt and buy mummies to then powder and eat wild you didn't know this sorry no what uh people used to buy mummies from egypt and they would like powder them and they would think it had health benefits or it was like a delicacy like so by powder you mean like crush them into powder yeah they would eat it yeah okay and this is just and like speaking thing to I've just learned. Usamagad, and I really recommend you talking to him about this mm-hmm. and like about him as an Egyptian who lives in Germany and about the way that like he sort of talked about it with his kids he has two daughters and like the way that society somehow has no reverence like can you imagine in America, someone going and, you know, digging up a whole bunch of bodies and then being like, oh, but maybe there's like Egyptian, uh, maybe there's Greek papyrology on there. So it's basically what cartonnage is. It's like they are basically taking apart mummies to, to see if there's something that is more valuable to them. I love them doing air quotes and no one can see it, but more valuable to them, yeah. like a piece of Sappho. And so with this specific... Euripides, a lot of Euripides yes. was found this way too, just to add that. Yeah, a lot and of Euripides. And it's, it's like, it's just the very Eurocentric idea that that is more important than preserving dead in a way that was respectful to a society. And we had this very... <laughs> we had this moment of... Um, of realizing that we had two conflicting... I don't like inconsistencies in beliefs, but then... Um, I realized that I think it's Yale University Library has a policy where if if there's a fire, they take all the oxygen out of the room and everybody inside dies <laughs> to save the books. And I was like, that's fine. And we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> but I think it's different. You're signing no, but, up for okay. it when you walk into the library. Okay. <laughs> yes. Agree entirely. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of on that side. Like, I just think we have enough humans. <laughs> you know, uh, that's my opinion. But I, I also like... And I don't want to, like, give myself away too much here. And I don't – to me, it's not about – well, I mean, I'm trying to decide how – we'll see what this comes across after I say it to you. But I do – I think that if – it's hard because of the Eurocentrism and because these are typically Egyptian Mm -hmm. mummies. And I think that that's the part that trips me up because obviously, like, with the the history that – you know, white people have, I think that we, 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 um, you know, it, we need to be like making up for everything and therefore be like extra, you know, caring and and all of these things that white people need to do to make up for what we have done. Um, and I say we quite specifically, like, obviously I'm white, but also I think that it's really important for white people to like own it up and use that collective we, even though like I personally, I'm also white and I feel like that's very important. Yeah. Like, you know, for me to say too we're both white people talking about this i'm trying to share the reflections of people of color who we've spoken to but like ultimately i am mm-hmm. still white. and and ultimately like neither of us 
personally have done anything, but we are going to own up to like the things that white people have done. And that's important. Mm -hmm. But all of that said too, like, I do think it's hard because it tends to be like, you're finding Greek things with dead people of color. And that is a problem. Mm. But I also do think that ultimately like literature is important overall. And like for me, but I think this also comes from like a complete atheism and like not remotely having any thoughts on the dead and so I don't think that that's like sound or fair all around because like you don't know how these people would have felt and they probably would have felt like completely differently but I also do think there's a level of importance in like histories it's Mm. just that the things we tend to find are Greek things with dead people from Egypt so you're like you're talking dead people from Africa finding Greek things which like you know, I think I think that there's like a there is an important distinction to draw between like the Greek world and whiteness because while we put it on them now, it wasn't they wouldn't have seen it then and no. they had a very multicultural society and like but we put it on them now and so the fact that we put whiteness onto Greece ancient Greece now I don't even think that modern Greek people necessarily get all the perks of being white. It's so fucking dark and weird. No. But the fact that we as like a quote unquote Western civilization like put whiteness onto ancient greek people and therefore find their work their white work on the bodies of non-white egyptians is so Mm. dark and so i think there's this like like interesting and dark line to like kind of straddle in terms of the importance of finding ancient histories and ancient writings and ancient everything with everything that comes from how you can possibly find it and i don't think that there's like there is no answer and probably i mean ultimately the answer probably is like stop fucking with bodies from you know africa yeah but i think i think mostly the answer is just like it's probably not our call at this point and i think that's probably more for me what it is like i'm also atheist so like for me like you know when i die like take my organs take my body for a science if you could find euripides on me please like if i die and you can find a euripides quote god take it But the point really being with that is that that's cool for us to say. It's just, I just think at this point, it's just not our call. And no, I think definitely. that's, that's for me, like my taking, my takeaway from all of it. It's just like, it's not our call. Like, and I just feel like this whole thing, it's like, it's, and it was staged also. Well, like, yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm talking about cartonage in general, mm. but like, that's fucked up. Mm. That like yeah. anything being staged is so. Did was the whole fragment staged? Was it a made yeah, up fragment? Yeah, like and apparently, so it was funny because someone was like in the room being like, "Oh my god, that's Sappho!" And then we we're talking to this amazing Canadian papyrologist, Mike Sampson, and he was saying, "Oh yeah, Sappho is very visibly Sappho on site." Because we're like, "How do you just see it?" And be like, "Wow, that's Sappho. That's wild." But apparently, it's very, very fair. Uh, I think it's the aeolic too because yeah. there's not a lot of. And Um, the way it's, and the stanzas and the way it's written. And mm -hmm. so they staged it, um, but it's still not really, anyway, we've spoken about this a lot. I really can't, like, as you know, I'm, I mean, I love, okay, so I'm going to tell one more story and then I'm going to say where we're at now because there's been a bit of news about it this week. And then I'm going to just tell you all to listen to my podcast. So, um, which again, I wouldn't usually do because like, do what you want, but like, I really just cannot, if you're, if this story intrigues you, I really just could not tell it on this episode. So Roberta Mazza, who we spoke to is writing a book about this. She's amazing. She's an Italian woman. And my favorite part is just that she was with her mom in Italy 
in lockdown and she was so bored and she was looking up artifacts on eBay and she found this guy who was selling something, I think maybe a Sappho fragment and she like went undercover like, hey, I'm interested in buying it. And he sent her a WhatsApp number and then she Googled it. And then like he sent, <laughs> she's like back and forth with him. And she was supposed to meet him in London. And like, it's this whole amazing story. He ended up threatening her and he knew where she was like teaching or whatever. Um, but uh, so this is the Egyptian dealer where I think uh, potentially this Sappho fragment came from. So that's a whole other side of it, which is just this woman this amazing woman just being like, I'm going undercover. Um, so she's Roberta Matz of the Spy to ask like Harriet the Spy, you know, she's great. I just love that's how people spend. I, I love this about the pandemic, how many people have like just done, like every, this whole universal, universal basic income misconception that if people don't have some job to do, that they're not going to be creative and amazing. Like, I'm just wondering if this ever would have come out like it did, if not for the pandemic. Yeah, that's a fascinating little, like, just that additional piece, yeah, of, like, just people having time on their hands. Like, Mike Samson was a new dad, and he was, Mm. like, up, like, he'd put the baby to bed, and he'd be up at night, like, looking up the timestamps of photos, and, like, like, (laughs) all of them were doing this crazy detective work for no reason except just, like, they were, like, we need to get to the bottom of this provenance. Which people don't do enough. Absolutely. That is just, yeah, it's so, I mean, the the levels of it are just utterly fascinating all around. I mean, it's just such an interesting story. And it's just something we absolutely did not expect. And it's just my favorite thing to to talk to people about. And we've gotten so much feedback on those episodes. People just being like, wow, came for a lesbianism, stayed for the papyrology. <laughs> yes, like I, I'm... I'm angry at myself that I haven't listened to those episodes already because I'm definitely going to. Just like the level of nerd in me that wants to know all of this shit and all of the drama though too. Like so much drama. (laughs) Right? It's like, I mean, the nerd stuff is fun. I love it. Love to learn. Love to like be able to spout these facts back to people later. But the drama involved in it as well is like... It's next level. Incredible. It was just just great to put together. And on the same thing of like academics, like I think... You know, it's easy. If you met a papyrologist at a party, you probably wouldn't think it would be that interesting. But actually, like, I ended up speaking to Malcolm, I think, for like an hour and a half. It was just like such an interesting conversation. And we were like, should we bring out the voices in? We're like, no, we could literally just have like two episodes with Malcolm. He's so great. It's just, it's been such an interesting thing. So where we're at now with it, which I'm going to just quickly say, there's been news this week. Uh, So basically... What we knew at the time of recording the last podcast is that Hobby Lobby had sued, like they'd, they'd asked Dirk Obbing to return the money to them that they had paid for the artifacts, which I think at that time was like 1.5 million or something. He paid like 10, I think I said 100,000 in the podcast, but when I was reading my notes, it said $10,000. And I was like, okay, he paid them an insignificant amount and then he ghosted them. <laughs> like he ghosted Hobby Lobby. Oh my God. Which is great. Okay, so th- just as soon as this week, uh, he is being sued for $7 million from Hobby Lobby. They had to return at least 5,000 artifacts to Egypt. Good. And the biggest Sappho fragment, the brother's poem I was talking to you about, that has been lost. No one knows where it is. But it's real. I mean, some people we don't know are like, real? is it real? Because it's not very good, which I think is a really great mm. take. Like, they were, I'm like, yeah. really like, 
I mean, it's, maybe it's her worst poem and she'd be so angry if we found it. But I mean, like, that's the funny thing about it is we do have fragments of her work and I think that's a really interesting thing about Sappho. And like, I know with the old age poem, which I think is fragment 58 off the top of my head, um, they had like, and it's funny because we, as you know, write a song for every episode and for the pre-2004 Discovery, we did like a psychedelic rock song. So it was very like fragmented and I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. So I was like, this is like a Pink Floyd song. So um, we did like a, a psychedelic track for that because it was very like running away. Yeah. There was a floating pink pig you. in the sky. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so, and then they found all this extra stuff. And so Elise did like a, a kind of country song to it. And Anne Carson, who was one of the main translators of Sappho's work, was like, I don't like the new discovered poem. She's like, I liked it better mm. when it's fragment- fragmented. And so it's funny because people are always like, I wish I had all 10,000 lines of Sappho's poetry. And it's like, maybe it's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously it was good because she is someone who has been she renowned. very famous. Very famous. Yeah. But, like, it's probably not all good, you know? Like, even Pink Floyd have some questionable songs. Like, every every artist has some not great bangers. Well, that and, like, you know, I mean, Pink Floyd, you don't know the stuff they didn't publish. Yeah. They didn't sing. They didn't, like, release. So, like, if, if you know, 2,000 years from now, somebody's finding, like, some notes in their stuff, yeah. like, it could be utter garbage, right? Like, because that's the thing. Well, that's the thing about... I mean, ancient stuff in general, right? It's like, this is not necessarily the stuff they wanted us to read. No. And I think that's fascinating. And like, yeah, like who who knows what Sappho would think to the fact that, you know, all these certain poems or whatever are, are being studied. Like maybe she'd be like, no, you know, I really only want you reading these ones. Mm. Or like, these are my words. It's like, it's like my rant at the beginning. Or like, I think this is probably off air, but like, I don't like the first episodes of my podcast and everyone fucking listens to them. And so like, if, you know, 2000 years from now, somebody was to like find my podcast and only listen to the first one, I would hate that I, so look, much. I have a whole Battlestar Galactica podcast that honestly I started because I had depression and I needed a project. I just had no filter. I was on a full, like I have fully changed and it's actually kind of beautiful in some ways. I would hate if that was the only thing that was found. So I think, Liv, this is where we make our pact, which we've made with a few people, and maybe you. (laughs) I think we've done this with you before, but maybe not on your podcast, where we go and bury transcripts of our podcast in the Egyptian desert. Although we've got to really look (laughs) at the climate change patterns and what's going to keep, Yeah, you know, but I think that we should... I might go to, like, Parnassus. Okay. I think I'm going to bury mine on Parnassus because, one, it's a mountain. Um, So when the, you know, the seas inevitably rise... um, It'll be fine, but also because that's where the muse is saying, and I'll just seem so much more fancy. That's true. Yeah, Yeah, we've really got to set out a plan for this because the audio thing, we don't know how that's going to, you ought to have something Mm -hmm. to play. I think we've really got to get our transcripts on papyrus and and really sort it out. So that's something to think about um, so that we can trick the future into thinking that we're important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good idea if there's a future. I mean, so, I mean, to be perfectly frank to all our listeners here, um, we just, randomly started talking about a bunch of other things um and so we're just gonna yeah exactly i've done it with people before there's a bunch of different breaks in my incredible episode with nikita gill where i just like added a note saying like hey we just became friends and so like you don't get to hear it all and there's gonna be some weird transitions such as life (laughs) (laughs) so this is one of those instances um but honestly like the i mean the 
pepperology stuff is so fascinating. So I'm thrilled that this was your idea to talk about in an episode where I was just like, let's talk about Sappho. You're queer. Let's do pride. I was like, frankly, I was like, we get along really well, which means that I can just have like a really nice, easy episode to talk through without having the stress of, of pressure of not knowing somebody very well. So this is perfect. It's been lovely. <laughs> I feel included after being you know not I mean it was my it was my choice I feel very included now finally part of the myths baby family but yeah I mean honestly just like talking about Sappho is so thrilling I think she straddles that line between mythology and history even though she doesn't technically but like the vibe of her does like a myth she does exactly like she talks about Mm. myths because it's Greek mythology or it's you know ancient Greece they all did but at the same time Sappho feels like this sort of like an enigma especially Mm. because as I go through all of these pride episodes like none of them really involve women and and it's like a stretch for the ones that do so I just want to focus on Sappho because she's like this very real woman that we can hold on to and be like freedom she was famous she wrote about men and women she just like lived her life and loved who she loved and 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 let's be honest like Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, like all of them are Sappho and all of them will be historical figures, but I'd like to think in 2,500 years, they'll also be kind of like mythological, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think we we literally like had a similar conversation when we talked on your podcast where I added Phoebe Bridgers. I think she gives me real Sappho vibes. Oh, um, but yeah, I mean, to, to wrap this all up in a super non-linear way, we have to wrap it up so we can have another glass of wine. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. As always, what a fun episode. I mean, I I say it every time. It's just so much fun that I get to do this, talk to all of these incredible people, become friends with them in so many cases, and just it's a real thrill of this podcast and my life. So thank you all for coming along for it. I am Liv, and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.